the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Former President Trump throws his hat into the ring for 2024. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. Once again, a runoff election for the Georgia Senate seat. Herschel Walker. And the way we can get things done is by working together, not trying to fight each other and and fight each other over everything, but just try to work together. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo looks at the 2022 election. Um, I think candidates failed to do the hard work they needed to do. President Joe Biden meets with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. This um, um, encounter started out with victory for China. Congressman Mike Gallagher explains why it matters. It's about the fact that the Chinese Communist Party is trying to destroy us. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Great to be with you. Catch my program each weekday morning live, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time and on demand 24-7. Learn more at HughHewitt.com. And follow me on Twitter at Hugh Hewitt. And follow this program, please, as well at Town Hall Review. We'll begin in Palm Beach, Florida and the Mar-a-Lago Resort, where on Tuesday night, former President Donald Trump made clear what many have been expecting. He is running for president in 2024. I covered it on my program. Now let's go to what Donald Trump said. There are three, three major takeaways, in my opinion. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. That's the key, that's the key takeaway. It took about 22 minutes to get there. It's a job for every aspiring young person and every hardworking parent, for every entrepreneur and underappreciated police officer who is ready to shout for safety in America. The police are being treated so badly. These are great people. They can straighten out the crime. They're the ones that know how to do it. We have to give them back their respect and their dignity. This will not be my campaign. This will be our campaign altogether. Because the only force strong enough to defeat the massive corruption we are up against is you, the American people. That is the key appeal, I think. One more, one more cut. The radical left Democrats have embraced an extreme ideology of government domination and control. Our approach is the opposite. One based on freedom, values, individual responsibility, and just plain common sense. It's common sense. At one point, the former president also said, I will be your voice. That was the appeal that he had in 2016, the forgotten man appeal. The former president's announcement comes on the heels of the 2022 election, an election that is not quite over yet. I'm referring to the Senate contest in Georgia, where the Republican Herschel Walker entered into a runoff against the left-wing pastor turned senator Reverend Raphael Warnock. I talked to Herschel about why this race matters so much. Now, this race means an enormous amount, Herschel Walker, to a 50-50 Senate. It splits the committees. It doesn't give control 
to Leader McConnell again, but it splits the committees 50-50 and it sets us up for 2024. So is every Republican helping you? Uh, well, I have a lot of people coming down to help. Uh, and, you know, I, I welcome anyone that want to come down to help for me to win this, this seat for the great people of Georgia. This is an important seat. I don't think people realize what it means, but they also don't realize having a leader in Washington can get people to change over. Uh, you know, I'm willing, to, and I said it from the beginning, to be a united. I'm willing to go over and cross the aisle and talk to other people as well and, and try to talk to them about what this country really means because it seems like a lot of people on the left forget about America is the greatest country in the world. This is the greatest country in the world, the United States of America. And the way we can get things done is by working together, not trying to fight each other and, and fight each other over everything, but just try to work together. But as a senator, he's failed Georgia as a senator. Right now, in less than two short years, we have this high inflation, whereas, you know, I think the best thing you can do with this high inflation is become energy independent again. And that can start putting money into this economy that can also start to help people to get back to working. And I think that's one thing we got to do. And then we got the crime out on the streets. We got so much crime because having a senator in, in Washington that believes in no cash bail, he believes in that we got to open up the prison, let prisoners out uh, without them serving their, their sentence, you know, that that's not right. And uh, so, I think you have a senator that is going to fight against things like that uh, is what I'm going to do. Now, in overtime, I mean, you're used to overtime, but nevertheless, a lot of people are weary of politics. Are you going to get the same turnout or less? In three more, I think it's in three more weeks, isn't it? I'm not sure the date of the. Uh, yeah, of the it, it, it's, it's a short period of time now. Well, that's what we're doing. We're getting out. Uh, we as soon as uh, we knew that we were going to be going in a runoff, the next day we were out on the stump, uh, going into it, uh, talking to a lot of people, letting them know what I stand for, and what we're doing. And people start coming in, and we're, we're, we're getting the word out. Politicos and pundits and the nation at large are all still sorting out the results of the 2022 election. I turn to Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State under Donald Trump and a former congressman himself, having represented Kansas' 4th District. In terms of, of Tuesday night, last Tuesday night, what happened? Oh, goodness. Incredibly disappointing. Look, I, I think there are a couple things that happened. Um, I think candidates failed to do the hard work they needed to do. You can't come on national news and, and rail against the machine. You have to actually go out and communicate the reason you are putting yourself forward to be voted on by the American people. And I think a lot of candidates just didn't do that hard retail work. And in, it was a time when they didn't come to trust the Republican Party to fix what everyone could see ails them. So this is the thing folks lose track of uh, when they just go on Twitter or uh, rant. They lose track of they came for a mission. The, the mission that everyone talked about was stopping the Biden policies. He's made clear he's not going to stop them, right? He said, well, am I going to change? I'm not going to make any change. The mission is to stop Joe Biden's policies and to begin to lay out a forward-looking, not rearward-looking, but forward-looking vision for America. It's what the candidates who won campaigned on, and it's the task that they have in front of them. And that, that's going to be hard because it's going to be a very slim majority. I have seen this uh, in Congress. When you have a slim majority, everybody thinks they're the deciding vote. They can get exactly what they want. Instead, we should rally around the traditional American uh, Republican value set, make clear to the American people why Joe Biden has failed them, and here is our actual no BS solution to fixing those things. It's what we missed on Tuesday night. Uh, I'm less worried, to be honest with you, with the palace intrigue. Uh, I am much more worried about our focus 
to make sure that as we, we move into what is now the 2024 campaign season, as we move into making this case over these next 23 months, we have to articulate why it is we can actually fix. We, we talked about crime. We, we talked about high inflation. We talked about crazy open borders. But we didn't convince enough Americans in the places that matter most. We didn't convince them that we could actually fix those problems. And for that reason, they said, well, I don't know. Um, I think I'll vote for the incumbents. Right? There, I think there was one statewide uh, official between Senate races and governor races that lost as an incumbent. This was an incumbent election, and uh, uh, that didn't let us get where we needed in the Senate. So it's going to be whoever leads the Senate is going to be the darn minority leader. Now, Mr. Secretary, I want to turn to China, because I went to a conference that uh, you, you chaired the Nixon seminar for the Nixon Foundation. I'm grateful for that. Uh, your co-chair, Robert O'Brien, and I uh, uh, did a Q&A in front of 300 people at a, uh, a China conference, the Grand Strategy Conference that the Nixon Foundation put on last week. And TikTok came up because it is increasingly obvious this is a weapon of the Chinese Communist Party. Why is that not banned? I know that was on your agenda. Why is it still here? It's unexplainable, Hugh. I, I get asked often. I was at Yale with a bunch of great conservative kids at Yale. was asked about the same question maybe a, a week ago. And I said, well, the government hasn't banned it, but you should, if you have TikTok on your phone, you should take it, walk out and throw it in the nearest pond here in New Haven. Uh, it is absolutely a weapon that the Chinese Communist Party and their intelligence service, the MSS, is using to surveil Americans. And sometimes it's uh, Chinese Americans who have family in China. And when that's the case, they are going inside the country and talking to those folks saying, hey, we know what your sister, your cousin, your brother, your father is doing in America. We, we should absolutely ban it, not just TikTok, but there should be no social media nor communications assets inside of the United States. Americans are subjected to that the Chinese Communist Party is in control of. It's that simple. There is no such thing as a private Chinese company. We should accept that fact and we should deal with it accordingly. Uh, Mr. Secretary, I told my, my son's fiance, and he's a lieutenant uh, and, and knows what he's doing. He's told her this, too. She's got to get it off her phone because it, even if you don't think it's active, it's tracking you. And it's compiling data that even if they're not looking at now, they've got stored forever. Am I right to be that paranoid? Yes, you're not paranoid. You're, you're just reflective of the reality. Take it off your phone. Uh, if you take it off your phone, I don't know if you know this level of technical detail, but you know people who do. If you take it off your phone, does your phone revert to norm, or do you have to get a new phone? It's complicated, Hugh. <laughs> you, you, um, the, the fewer people who download the app, the less likely it is the Chinese will surveil them. You know what? Thank, uh, that, that's clear. Let's leave it there. Let's move to uh, the defense rebuild. Uh, actually, let's move to the House. If Kevin McCarthy gets his way, he wants to establish the Select Committee on China. You know the House and you know China. Is that a good idea? I think it is, but if you don't, just slam it. I think it's a great idea. I think it should be bipartisan. This matter, the, the challenge that's confronting us has to be bipartisan because it's going to take years and multiple administrations, multiple Congresses to confront. Uh, it should be deep. They should put smart people on. They should hire experts from around uh, all the various spaces, uh, space, space technology, uh, espionage, counterintelligence, uh, our economic confrontation with China, how, how we uh, ch- shape markets so that American companies can succeed at the expense of Chinese companies that are trying to steal our stuff and steal our jobs. All of those things should be on that agenda. And a House committee that looks into that, works on it, and delivers for the American people a blueprint for American success would be really important. Last question, Mr. Secretary. Yesterday, President Biden said he doesn't want a new Cold War. 
I believe we are in a Cold War, and that saying that is destructive of purposeful, uh, intentional policy. What do you think? Yes, and most importantly, is not what I think, but what Xi Jinping thinks. And when Xi Jinping hears that, he thinks this is America that is prepared to fold its tent and allow China to run rampant and free around the world. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party has been at war, at least economically, with the United States for 25 or 30 years. It has to be confronted. And a statement like that, I don't know, did, did you want a hot war? Right? A cold war is a state of conflict. And I can assure you that the Chinese Communist Party, they use the word struggle. They have been in a struggle, a conflict with the West and the United States for decades. And we've just been naive or greedy or some combination thereof. It is time to confront this challenge. Uh, it will not be easy. But it is completely achievable, and America can prevail as long as we have real leaders that are prepared to acknowledge the risk and work to fix it. Coming up, we'll continue on China and the president's meeting with Chinese leader Xi. This um, um, encounter started out with victory for China. When the town hall review returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, We've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. The former Secretary of State in our last segment is right to point us to the very real threat we face from an increasingly assertive and belligerent China. In light of that, we were watching closely to see how the president's meeting went with Chinese leader Xi Jinping on Monday of this week. The two met for three hours at the Group of 20 summit in Bali, Indonesia on Monday evening. Gordon Chang has been watching China closely for decades. You join Joe Piscopo on AM 970, The Answer, in New York City. What does Biden have to do to uh, put some fear, if that's the right word, respect at least, uh, to President Xi, Gordon? Yeah, I, I don't know um, what he has to do because he hasn't been doing it. Um, yeah. But a couple things here. Um, this um, um, encounter started out with victory for China. Yeah, Xi Jinping was standing in the middle of the room, you know, surrounded by the flags, and Biden from the side of the room walks to Xi Jinping. Now that shows the United States oh, being the vassal, yeah. um, very much being the supplicant, and this was stage managed. Now, why Biden would agree to that, I don't know, but that put him in, in an inferior position. I saw a president shuffling out, and he did that handshake, the same handshake that he keeps out there as he wanders around, wondering how he's going to leave the stage, and the Chinese picked that up in a second, don't they? Yeah, well, they, they, they obviously, they made sure that happened. Gordon Chang, if I, we have the RSV, there's this virus, this respiratory virus. We have the flu. We have all these other viruses. And I understand from talking to medical experts, it's exploding around us. This all came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and we don't have a president that addresses it. It is so frustrating, Gordon, and I don't think anybody, I guess we're never going to get answers out of that Wuhan Institute of Virology and know exactly what happened. Been, my friend well not during the biden administration and you know biden's first question during the press conference came from a wall street journal reporter who asked are we in a new cold war and biden said no 
But the point is, this is a Cold War. I actually think it's worse than this. China mm-hmm. has this doctrine of unrestricted warfare. They've just killed 1,074,000 Americans. You know, we can argue about the number, but yep, that's yep, a lot yep. of Americans, however you cut it. And we know we talk about uh, Americans dying from fentanyl, that oh. illegal fentanyl, oh. 77,000, 78,000 deaths last year from yeah. illegal fentanyl. Is that, a, is that a concerted effort, too? The Chinese know what they're doing there? Yes, they're absolutely doing it on purpose, Joe. And TikTok, which is Chinese-owned, glorifies yeah. drug use. So uh. this is clear that that 77,000, 78,000 deaths from illegal fentanyl last year, because Americans are not only being killed by fentanyl, they're being murdered by fentanyl, Joe. As Republicans gain control of the House, watch Wisconsin Representative Mike Gallagher. He's rightly very serious about the threat from China. He joined my program. We'll pick up with what he's hoping for from Democrats in the next Congress. And I think the one area where we can make a lot of progress, even in a divided Congress and divided uh, government where the two parties disagree on major things, is when it comes to China. I think we have an opportunity to lay a bipartisan foundation for U.S. foreign policy. Now, there's still going to be disagreements between the parties. I think Biden's overall foreign policy is a shambles right now. I think they're actually projecting weakness when it comes to China. But I do think there are members on both sides of the aisle that understand that China is our biggest threat. And so we can work together in order to get some big things done in this Congress when a lot of what we're going to be doing is not moving big legislation. It's just going to be basic oversight and holding the executive branch accountable. Uh, Mike Gallagher, you're on Intel. You're on Armed Services, both key committees. Is Leader McCarthy, soon to be Speaker McCarthy, going to establish the select committee? Do you want to be on it? Do you want to be chair? And what do we know about it? Uh, Yes, yes, uh, and yes. He is going to uh, establish the committee. It was in his commitment to America. Uh, I know he's constantly talking about, you know, what he views to be the biggest uh, threats to our country, a combination of China and our looming debt crisis. And so I know he is committed to creating the Select Committee on China. And if he asked me to serve on it, I would do so gladly. You know, I've spent a, a lot of my efforts in Congress the last six years trying to get us ready to win this new Cold War with China and trying to reestablish deterrence in the near term. And there's where I really think the Select Committee on China can have an impact, right? It can coordinate among the various committees, among armed services, among foreign affairs, among intel, to make sure that we are all kind of moving in the same direction and making sure that we are uh, ensuring the administration is doing some basic things like clearing the backlog the $14 billion worth of uh, a backlog of military assistance to Taiwan, things that have been approved but not yet delivered, expanding our stockpiles of munitions in the Indo-Pacific. And then when it comes to sort of non-military things, I think the committee would be a great uh, mechanism to, uh, to elevate certain issues such as the pernicious role that TikTok is playing in America. Myself and Senator Rubio have introduced the bill that would ban TikTok. I can tell you, Hugh, that at least in the House, this is going to be a bipartisan bill. I'm not yet ready to announce my Democratic co-sponsor, but there will be Democratic co-sponsors. So I'm, I'm very optimistic that on those issues, we can really use the Select Committee on China to kind of apprise the American people about why they should care about the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party. If, if you're on that committee, whether or not you're chair and what, no matter who is the chair, I'm going to lobby everyone to regularly schedule meetings and make sure C-SPAN is in the room and use it to advance the American public's knowledge 
of China and that you hire Mandarin speaking experts and that you make these basically intended not to score political points, but to educate the American people like a, a new long telegram, a virtual long telegram for the new millennium, because nobody gets it, Congressman. I mean, some people do, but not a lot of people get it. 100 percent, Hugh. Again, explaining why it matters to the American people, I think, is going to be a core task of this committee. You know, it's not about obscure territorial claims in the South and East China Sea. It's not about these fancy phrases we throw around like a rules-based international order. It's about the fact that the Chinese Communist Party is trying to destroy us. They wouldn't put it in precisely those terms, but their goal is to destroy the capital, the capitalist-led system that the United States is the leader of and prepare the way for the triumph of world socialism with Chinese characteristics. So we need to understand how and why they're doing it. And in many ways, they're doing it subtly. You can think about it sort of like an assisted suicide, Hugh. They're supplying us with the chemicals in the form of fentanyl. They're uh, imposing upon us economic devastation in the form of coronavirus, IP theft, and economic warfare. They're cutting us off. They're trying to cut us off from our friends and isolate us on the world stage. And then they're also supplying the self-loathing and depression in the form of ideological warfare, co-opting some of the radical left anti-American narratives and promoting that so that we start to lose faith in ourselves as the good guys. This is all happening right under our noses. And if we have serious members and if we have a staff, as you point out, that has the requisite expertise, language skills, I think we can do this in a way that is aggressive, but still serious and statesmanlike. Right. You don't want you don't want this to descend into some form of McCarthyism. And I'm painfully aware of that because I come from the district where Joe McCarthy is buried, and I'm the second Marine intelligence officer ever elected to Congress from Wisconsin, the first being uh, McCarthy. So we can do this in a way that doesn't go overboard, that's smart, serious, sober, but still strong. Coming up, Benjamin, Bibi, Netanyahu. And a huge grin spread over his face, and he said, See, Bibi, I told you not to go. The Israeli leader's story from the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, Charlie Kirk here. We've been working very hard on an amazing new docu-series called Border Battle. It chronicles the horrifying conditions on America's southern border. What you are going to see in Border Battle will blow your mind. It's amazing. First-hand interviews, incredible commentary, straight up on the front lines. We've worked very hard on this from Turning Point USA, and we are exposing the border crisis. Available exclusively on SalemNow.com. Produced by Turning Point USA. Available at SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. As we look at the results of our recent election, I observed how evenly divided our nation is today. Well, our evenly dividedness pales with what we've seen from our friends in Israel. They just held their fifth election in four years. The result? It looks as though Benjamin Netanyahu is returning to serve as prime minister for an unprecedented third time. He used the time out of office well. He wrote a book, a riveting tale, titled Bibi, My Story. He was a guest for an hour on my program. Here are some highlights. I have greatly enjoyed Bibi, My Story. Jonathan Karp sent it to me on Friday, and I've done nothing but read it and listen to it. And I enjoyed the fact that you recorded the end of the book, but not the beginning. So I, I got through your accent pretty good at the end there. Let's start with the beginning, though. And an argument among brothers on a tarmac about who is going to uh, rush into an airplane. I've never read that before. That might be familiar 
to listeners in Israel, but it ain't familiar to Americans. That's kind of an extraordinary story. Well, indeed it was. I can tell you that far from being uh, just uh, an extraordinary story, it was an extraordinary, in many ways, an unbelievable moment in, in my life. Um, and it's, uh, it's one where my brother was pitted against me. Uh, we had uh, 16 soldiers from uh, our unit dressed as mechanics, uh, about to uh, fix, in quotes, fix uh, a hijacked plane. That was a ruse arranged by uh, foreign, by Defense Minister Dayan to uh, overtake these, uh, this hijacked plane that was landed near Tel Aviv. The terrorists demanded that we release uh, 300 uh, jail terrorists, and if we didn't, if Israel didn't agree, they'd blow up the plane with all its passengers. Um, Dayan... Uh, seemed to acquiesce to their request, falsely, of course. Um, but we had to fix the plane to allow it to fly with the released terrorists to a destination of the choice of the hijackers. We got on the plane. We were to get on the plane as mechanics, uh, situate ourselves in front of these various entrances, uh, and then storm on a prearranged uh, signal, storm the plane and uh, kill the terrorists and uh, uh, release the hostages. Uh, no one had ever done that before, so we were all ready to go. We had uh, practiced dressed up in mechanics, white mechanics overall, uh, stuck uh, the red of pistols in our boots. We couldn't use our Uzis and Kalashnikov assault rifles, which are our normal weapons, because they were too big to hide, and also because their firepower could have endangered the passengers. And now we're all ready to go. And my older brother, Jonathan, Yoni, uh, who was senior to me in our unit, um, came to me and he said, um, well, I'm going too. And I said, you can't go. <laughs> he said, why not? I said, well, because I'm already there. And you can't have two brothers in such close quarters uh, because uh, obviously one of us could, or even both of us could get killed. We were afraid the terrorists would blow up the plane with, prearranged charges that they put on the aircraft. Um, and then he said to me, well, then I'll go in your stead. And I said, you can't go in my in, in my place because these are my soldiers. And he said, so we'll both go. And I said, Yoni, what are you talking about? Think of father and mother. Think of what would happen if one of us uh, got hurt or killed. And he said something to me that was unbelievable. He said, very slowly and very deliberately. He said, Bibi, my life is my own and my death is my own. And I saw that iron resolution that he had. Uh, and of course, I, I pushed him off as far as I could, but we had to go to the commander of the unit and he sided with me. So my brother was left uh, behind. Well, I, um, my favorite part, and only a brother could do this, it's an amazing story with which to begin a book, but only a brother could stand over his wounded brother as Yoni stood over you because you took the bullet and say, Bibi, I told you not to go. I laughed out loud when I read that because only a brother could do that, right? Well, he, he didn't know when I was, I was shot by friendly fire in the, in the uh, storming of the aircraft, and we killed two, uh, two of the terrorists and captured two of the women terrorists. Uh, and liberated the plane, and um, tragically, one uh, young woman, a young mother, was killed uh, by the terrorists. Uh, 
but we we were able to uh, liberate everyone else. And I was the only uh, uh, military casualty. I got shot in the arm. And as I lay on the tarmac, I could see Yoni rushing to me, and he had a, a terrible look of distress on his face. And as he approached me, you could see the white splatter of blood as he stood over me on my sleeve. That's where I got shot in my arm. And a huge grin spread over his face, and he said, See, Bibi, I told you not to go. <laughs> yeah. I am the youngest of three boys, Mr. Prime Minister, so I identify with Ido through this thing. But I am not a soldier, and I've never been a soldier. I think that's an amazing story. Coming up. You mean to tell me, I was, I'm talking to myself, you're going to let this man die because you can't puncture this aluminum tube? More with Bibi. When the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Grounded in our distinctive Great Books curriculum, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy prepares students for exciting careers in politics who understand the relevance of America's founding principles to today's policy challenges. From our Southern California campus, we've sent over a 1,000 alumni across America and around the world. The application period for fall 2022 classes has begun. Find out more at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Benjamin Beebe Netanyahu is a fascinating figure in the history of the modern Middle East. Before he serves a single day as prime minister in his new term, he is already Israel's longest-serving head of government. He has also been a part of so many of the key battles for the sole democracy in the Middle East. Let's pick up with more of my conversation with once and future Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu. There are some harrowing moments. You almost drowned in the Suez Canal. You mentioned centimeters. If someone doesn't extend a hand, you're dead because you jumped in the water with, I don't know how many kilometers of, uh, how many uh, kilograms of weight on you and you were sinking like a rock. Another time, you have to get a soldier off of his knees in the Golan Heights. In fact, the Golan Heights were hard on both you and your brothers, all of them. Uh, So it's a matter of inches in war. When you're making that decision to go or not go, what is the the ultimate calculation, Mr. Prime Minister? I I think the first thing is whether you can maintain a clear head in the midst of battle or in the midst of uh, enormous duress. In the um, Suez firefight, we were at the time at war with Egypt, happily that's behind us. But we had a terrible war of attrition and we were being attacked by the Egyptians who crossed the canal to our side and were uh, raiding our people, killing them uh, wholesale. And the army command decided to send my unit uh, to their side of the canal. And we successfully did that one night and uh, ambushed uh, an Egyptian military convoy. And the, by the way, not, not a pleasant experience to see uh, people in agony and died, something that I never rejoiced in, put it this way. But, of course, there was great rejoicing on our side. So they said, okay, we'll we'll send you another time. And 48 hours passed between this successful raid and the next one. And as we got into these uh, Zodiac rubber boats across the canal, as we approached close to the Egyptian side of the canal, the Egyptians had uh, dug foxholes every 100 meters. Uh, without our knowing it, and they opened a horrific fire at us, which killed uh, one of my friends in the uh, boat right in front of us. And I thought that we'd be much safer. And if you want to imagine, just think of these movies that you see, um, like the um, uh, landing in Normandy. So just imagine this horrific fire that is being fired at you, and you're 
like sitting ducks, literally sitting ducks in these rubber boats 30, 40, 50 yards from uh, the Egyptian position. And we began rolling our boats back. And I thought and said to my uh, fellow soldiers on this boat, you know, we'd be much safer in the water because the bullets, uh, you know, after uh, they lose their trajectory. And so we both, we all jumped into the water, except the guy who stayed to steer the boat back. And I, uh, I forgot that although I had a, a life vest, I had only half inflated it. In my hurry to jump into the water, I forgot that I was carrying a 40-pound ammunition pack. I was a, a gunner uh, with a machine gun. Uh, and, of course, I left the machine gun in the boat, but, but the back pack was unstrapped very tightly, combat fashion, on my back. As soon as I jumped into the water, I began sinking like a rock uh, to the uh, bowels of the Suez Canal. I realized that I was going to drown. The boat, in the meantime, moved uh, towards our side. And I, I tried desperately to reach back the surface with my lungs were beginning to fill with water. I managed to reach the surface, drowned again, mustered all the strength that I had for one last kick for life. And, you know, at that point, you're overcome with um, tremendous, uh, just on the verge of panic and suffocation, which is, uh, you know, it's a question, what is the worst death? I, having experienced near death by drowning, I'd say that's, uh, that's pretty high on the, on the list. But somehow I managed to muster enough strength to give one last kick, reach the surface, not quite, my hand actually reached the surface, and somebody grabbed my hand and connected it to the rope on the rubber boat. They must have seen me, and they took the boat back, put me, strapped me to the boat, and I had, uh, that's how I survived that. So what was I thinking at the time? Life, you know, how do I live? How do I overcome death? But that's when you were trying to save yourself. At other times, uh, when you're a commander, as I was later, and you described on the Golan Heights, and uh, it's actually on the Hermon Mountain, coming back from an operation in Syria, trying to uh, save my men because we were caught in a blizzard. We were wet. We were exhausted. And we were suffering from hypothermia. And I knew that we were, if we don't make it up that mountain, we all die. And one of the uh, soldiers in my... Uh, uh, under my command, who was, happened to be the biggest guy there, about to weigh 230 pounds at least, uh, and he, he just sat. He just sat in the snow. And I knew at that point that he was going to die. Now I'm frozen. My hands are frozen. My fingers are swollen to the size of cucumbers. I couldn't do anything with him. And I slapped the guy on the face. And I told him, get up. And he looked at me with his glazed eyes. He, he couldn't do anything. He just sat there. And I know he's going to die. I had to get him off, and I, I just had to have a clear head. And remember, now, this is anguish because you're, uh, it's very painful. Everything is very painful because you're freezing. Your extremities are freezing. Your feet are frozen. You're frozen. And your mind is frozen. So I, I thought, how, how, how the hell, you know, think. What are you going to do? You're going to let this guy die here? No. So I came up with an idea. And the idea was that we had what we call survival kit. The survival kit was nothing more than caramelized milk in a in a aluminum tube. So I said, okay, I'll give this guy a shot of glucose, and that might get him up. I got the survival uh, tube out of my pack. I unscrewed the, the top. You know, it's a, it's a plastic covering. And now I was going to turn it around and puncture that aluminum seal at the top of these, uh, these tubes. And unfortunately, because my hands were so swollen, I lost the, the cover. 
and it just sank into uh, you know a meter of snow. There's no way I could find it. And I said, you mean to tell me, I was t- I'm talking to myself, you're going to let this man die because you can't puncture this aluminum tube? And then I, I thought of, of a solution. I carried, as the commander, uh, an Uzi uh, uh, submachine gun. The Uzi has a forward sight, which is a, a little uh, triangle shape. It's like a little pyramid, pointed pyramid, which is used for the gun sight. And I called one of the soldiers. I said, hold the weapon. And he held the weapon. And I took the tube and punctured it on the struggle side. <laughs> and sure enough, the aluminum steel was punctured. I took it. You know, if you can imagine, like Popeye the sailor, when you give him the, the spinach. So I gave this, <laughs> this soldier this caramelized milk, which luckily hadn't frozen. And sure enough, he, he, he shot up like Popped a, right a, up. Popeye. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Mr. Got, got right up. Coming up. Perhaps the most tragic moment of my life. Not perhaps, for sure. Second only to the task of telling my parents about the fall of their oldest son. A few more minutes with Bibi Netanyahu in the final segment of the Town All Review with Hugh Hewitt. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Georgine Rice. This week in the Christian Outlook, sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, the Senate advances the Respect for Marriage Act. But don't be fooled by the name. It's not marriage equality. It's marriage redefinition. We'll get analysis from Albert Moeller. 47 House Republicans voted for the so-called Respect for Marriage Act. And a reminder of what marriage is. Marriage is and can only be the union of a man and a woman according to Scripture. And reflections from my own program on the primacy of Christ even in an election season. I know that politics has become too important to me when I'm willing to speak evil of someone else who is made in the image of God if he or she disagrees with my political viewpoint. Be sure to join us and visit our website at ChristianOutlook.com. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. The Raider and Tebby. I hope it's an episode of Israeli history and military history more broadly that you are familiar with. It was the audacious rescue effort by Israeli special forces of a hijacked Israeli plane parked in Uganda by Lake Victoria, deep in the middle of Africa. The Netanyahu family is at the center of this story as well. And I'm convinced this is why Prime Minister Netanyahu wrote Bibi, my story. A few more minutes with Bibi. Listen, there are many, many memorable portraits in here. Yoni is by far the most memorable. Did you be, you wrote this in longhand during your one year in opposition? Did you set out to make this a testament to Yoni? Because that's what it is. Well, I think it's um, it's interwoven with the story of my family and my brother, obviously, and my father was a great historian of the Jewish people and also a great activist for Zionism in the 1930s and 1940s during the war especially in America, where he met just about everyone, including uh, General Eisenhower. But my story is woven with the story of the rise of Israel and the, uh, the mission that uh, informed my family and me to assure the security, prosperity, and permanence of the one and only Jewish state. But, of course, the, the story of my own family, of my brother and my father, my mother and my brother, too, looms large uh, in, this, uh, in this saga. So uh, did I set out to write? Yes, I wanted, of course, to tell people, especially people outside the country who don't know the story of my brother. Obviously, I wanted to bring that to life because four years later, he commanded the 
perhaps the most celebrated rescue mission of modern times, which is the rescue uh, in Uganda, in Antebi, Uganda, of another hijacked plane. See, this time the terrorists thought, well, we can't land the plane in the hijacked plane in Tel Aviv because we proved that we would liberate it. So they decided to take it to the heart of Africa, thousands of miles away, and surely Israel couldn't do anything there. Well, they were wrong. They were and very wrong. Dead of night, my brother landed with uh, the unit that I had served in. I was by then already a student in, in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts at MIT. Uh, and Yoni had become the commander of this unit, leading his men, stormed the old terminal in the Entebbe Airport where the hostages were kept, liberated 103 Jewish uh, hostages, killed the Ugandan troops, destroyed the Ugandan MiGs that uh, protected could have given chase to the plane and performed the, uh, what the uh, Drew Middleton, who was a very respected commentator, uh, analyst of the New York Times, said was an operation without precedent in uh, military history. He only died, he died there uh, leading his men. Uh, so uh, obviously uh, uh, it was um, uh, perhaps the most tragic moment of my life, not perhaps, for sure. The only Second only to task of telling my parents, uh, as I did, about the fall of their oldest son. Thank you for joining us for the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Catch up on earlier episodes at our website, townhallreview.com, and sign up for a daily dose of the best in talk radio. Special thanks to executive producer Russell Shubin, producers David Bouchon, Michael Cook, Tim Gantner, Adam Ramsey, and Dwayne Patterson. Let me say thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining us. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.